One of the things that literary scholars love to debate is who is the protagonist in a complex story? Uh, a good question to ask is who wants something or how much do they want it? Who wants it the most? Uh, this may not seem debatable. Often it's clear, but sometimes a case can actually be made for kind of multiple characters to the, be, who want to be the center of a story. At, at first glance, our, our text this morning, which is no mere story, but is actual history, seems to be centered around King Ahab and what he wants. But as the story, as the, as the actual history unfolds, it becomes clear that, that Yahweh, the, the God of the universe, is the true center of the scene. What he wants, he will get, because he's God. What he wants is his people's undivided worship. He wants their trust. He wants their love. He wants their obedience. As we study 1 Kings chapters 20, 21, and most of 22 this morning, consider who this is really about. And consider how your own story, your own history, may actually be less about you and more about the God who made you to love him, to serve him, and to follow him. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 20. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 302. 302. This morning, we, we have the privilege of setting nearly three chapters of 1 Kings. And you'll recall that 1 and 2 Kings were originally one book, which explains how Israel, the nation of Israel, descended from the golden era of King Solomon into the grueling era of the exile. The goal of the book is to explain to God's people how they got where they are. And it's to give God's people hope that God will yet raise up His promised King and Son to save His people from their sins. Of course, while we're, while we're keeping our eyes fixed on the horizon, looking for that ray of light, we have to honestly deal with the darkness. Over the past several weeks, we've been setting the reign of one king, Ahab, in light of the ministry of the prophet Elijah. And, and due to the length of our text this morning, we're, we're not going to read every word, which is one reason I'd commend to you the practice of, of taking a bulletin home each week and reading through the text that we'll consider together the following Sunday morning. I would even appreciate and welcome uh, hearing your thoughts and questions and reflections on that text during the week. Uh, feel free to send me a, an email or a text message saying, what, what's going on here? Or have you thought about this there? I'd love to hear from you about the passage of Scripture that we're going to study together. But let me just go ahead and give you the bluff. Uh, the, the bottom line up front here about this text. 1 Kings chapters 20, 21, and 22 are the conclusion of Ahab's life and reign as the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. You'll remember that at this point, the, the kingdom of Israel has actually split. There's a northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and there's a southern kingdom called Judah. But this is the conclusion of Ahab's life and reign as the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. These three chapters reveal that Ahab is just as obstinate. He's just as wicked as he was when we first met him in 1 Kings chapter 16. Perhaps you'll remember these words from 1 Kings chapter 16 verse 33. 
Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And as we've seen and as we'll continue to see, Ahab refuses to receive God's mighty acts of mercy as a call, as an invitation to hear and obey. All of his actions and the actions of the people of Israel under him reveal that Israel has forsaken the covenant, as Elijah said, and that the people of Israel are worthy of judgment like their king. As goes the king, so goes the country. As the king marches headlong toward judgment, so does Israel. This is the darkness, but the ray of light and hope is that God is faithful to his word of promise. And he pursues his people. 1 Kings chapter 20 teaches us about God's patience and the necessity of obedience. 1 Kings chapter 21 teaches us about God's generosity and the necessity of contentment. And 1 Kings 22 teaches us about God's justice and the necessity of hearing. Those three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. And God's word plays a dominating role in all three chapters. Let's consider their message now. First, first point, God's patience and the necessity of obedience. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 20. Let's begin by reading just the first 12 verses. So begin there in verse 1 of chapter 20. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered together all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria. That's the capital city, the northern king of Israel. He closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases, them, uh, whatever pleases you and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, let, him not, let, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. What's here? What's going on here in this chapter as a whole? Well, the king of Syria wants to make Ahab and the northern kingdom of Israel a vassal state, a subjected state. He shows up with his messengers and demands the treasures of Israel, including the wives of the men of Israel. 
In short, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, is threatening war against Ahab and the people of Israel. He's an arrogant king, as we see there. He's also a drunk. And this pride and indulgence is actually going to reemerge later in the chapter. If, if we were reading through the book of Kings, straight through, our gut reaction to this, these opening verses of chapter 20 uh, would be, should be this. God would be completely just in letting Israel get run over by the king of Syria, by Ben-Hadad. And yet, what happens next displays God's immense patience with Ahab and the people of Israel. This is a people who have forsaken God's covenant, sinned and rebelled against Him. And now take a look at verse 13. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Do you see God's great patience with Ahab and Israel here? Here is a nation and a king worthy of judgment. And yet God sends Ahab a prophet to reassure him that he and Israel will have victory. Indeed, God even keeps his word and Israel defeats Ben-Hadad and his armies. Just skip down to verse 21 and see for yourself. 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 21. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. You see, as the chapter unfolds, Ben-Hadad and his army, they, they actually regroup. They decide to come back for war at a different time and at a different place. As spring rolls around, Ben-Hadad and his fellow Syrians surmise that they lost because, oh, we lost because Yahweh, he, he's a God of the hills. Whereas Syria's God is a God of the valleys. Now that means, according to Syrian thinking, that they really need to fight in the valley. But what do we know about Yahweh? We prayed about it this morning. He is a God of the hills and the valleys, of every hill and every valley, because He's a God of the universe. He's the one who made it all. He made it all and He rules over it all. He will have victory, not just in one corner, but in every corner. This world is His. As battle preparations begin, notice what God does once again. Take a look there at verse 26, 1 Kings 20, verses 26 to 28. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is a God of hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. What does God promise here? He promises to give this great multitude into Ahab and Israel's hand. And why does he promise it? Did you see that there in the text? He said it earlier. He wants Ahab and Israel to know that Yahweh is God. Now watch what happens. Read verses 29 and 30. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined. Just pause. Anybody remember a battle that started and then Israel kind of waits seven days? All right, let's keep reading. Just stick that in your mind. And they went and camped opposite one another seven days. And on the seventh day, the battle was joined 
And the people of Israel struck down the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek. And then a wall. Anybody remember a, a battle with seven days and a wall? Okay, here it comes. And the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. See, Israel wins just as God said. Not only that, but as I've been hinting at, uh, largely I hope you've gotten it, this is reminiscent of the fall of Jericho's walls, right? Jericho and Joshua, their seven-day trek around the city, and a wall falls upon the remaining men who are left there. I wonder, do you, do you see the patience of God? And, and, and we could say the persistence of God, right? He has already defeated Baal over Mount Carmel, He's defeated Baal in order to show Ahab and Israel that he and he alone is God. Yahweh has defeated Baal in order to reveal that he alone is worthy of worship. And here Yahweh defeats the gods of Syria. Here is another patient overture and mighty act of mercy from Yahweh and Ahab and Israel. This nation who has gone after other gods... Yahweh saying, yet again, don't go after them, come after me. This is an invitation from God for Ahab to know that he has got to trust and obey him, to turn from forming alliances and allegiances with other gods and other nations. Yahweh has given Ben-Hadad into Ahab's hand. Ben-Hadad is trapped in the city and Ahab should finish the job. This is what should happen in holy war, according to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Verses 10 to 18. But Ahab does not obey the Lord's commands for holy war. Instead, when Ben-Hadad offers to give himself up as a vassal, Ahab essentially says, No, 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 no. You're not going to be my servant, but my brother. The enemy of God gets off scot-free. Becomes an economic partner with Ahab. A friend of mine said that the, they set up flea markets together with these bazaars. Uh, and they enter into a covenant. The, the whole point of, of recounting Ahab's wars and his covenant with Syria, Ben-Hadad, is summarized in a somewhat strange scene of a prophet who asks to get beat up. All right, so, so in verses 35 to 43, we have this somewhat strange scene. Suddenly there's this prophet who's walking around, starts asking people to punch him in the face. Uh, one guy refuses, and, and the prophet says, well... Since you refused this command, a lion is going to eat you. It's going to strike you down. Now, we've seen this before in the book of Kings, in chapter 13 to be specific. So here's a, a serious lesson from the book of Kings. If you're a citizen in ancient Israel and a prophet commands you to do something by the word of the Lord, you should always obey, at least for fear of lions. Sure enough, a lion turns up and strikes him down there in verse 36. But the prophet, he finally finds someone to punch him in the face. <laughs> And he, he turns up in front of King Ahab and he disguises himself and, and, and covers, kind of bandages his wound. Now, now, what happens here in this scene with the prophet and King Ahab is similar uh, to what happened between the prophet Nathan and King David. Right? Nathan disclosed to David that he was in sin and under God's judgment. The prophet uses a, a personal visual and physical drama to open the king's eyes to the fact that he is, has sinned and is worthy of judgment. In other words, the, the prophet kind of sets the king up so that he condemns himself. He, Ahab announces his own judgment. Take a look there at verse 38 to 43. So the prophet 
departed. He's been punched. The prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed by, he, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I have devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. So the punched prophet, he gets Ahab to confess that you never let a prisoner of war go. The punched prophet basically gets Ahab to confess that his punishment, his own punishment, Ahab's punishment, was deserved. And that's, it's at that point that the prophet removes his disguise and says, Thou art the man, Ahab. You have done this and you will be judged for it. I was punched as I was punched, so you will be punished. That's what's here in 1 Kings 20. But, but why is it here? It's here to show us that God is so patient with His people. He is even patient with wicked Ahab. He redeems and rescues His people from trouble time and time again, and yet they fail to obey. What is more, when Ahab's disobedience is disclosed... He's not repentant. Did you, did you see that in verse 43? He's vexed and sullen. Or as other translations say, he's rebellious and furious. He doesn't own up to his wrong. He's resentful. Perhaps resentful that he has been caught and called on it. Ahab is acting like a child throwing a pity party for himself. You remember when your parents um, would confront you Remember when they would tell you, you've, you've done wrong? And what was maybe your reaction? Do you, you ever say, you're so mean, right? You're not actually dealing with the wrong they pointed out, right? You're, you're pointing back at them. It's actually not, not mean for others to point out wrong and sin. It's not mean, it's merciful, right? Because until our eyes were open to see it, we, we weren't going to repent of it. What we've seen here in this chapter, uh, we've seen why it's here, but what do we ourselves need to hear from chapter 20? If God is patient with wicked Ahab, then He is being patient with you. He is sending you overture after overture of His patient mercy. He has done a mighty work of redemption in Jesus Christ. Christian, He has rescued from He's rescued you from the enemies of sin and death. He is calling you to trust Him and obey Him. He is calling you to put sin to death in your life. Do not make an enemy your ally. Do not bargain and barter with it. Do not set up a bazaar to sell your soul to sin like Ahab. Set up a bazaar in partnership with Ben-Hadad. As John Owen famously said, be killing sin 
or it will be killing you. God has commanded us to prosecute a holy war in our lives. We're called to prosecute a holy war, not against persons in our world, but against perversity in our hearts. And when God discloses to you that you have disobeyed His word, your response ought not be a pity party. When He reveals to you through fellow church members and Christians, friends and family, that you've sinned, you ought not go away vexed and sullen. But you ought to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Confess your disobedience and sin and appeal to Him for mercy in Jesus Christ. There's one more thing we need to hear here. And that is this. Believe better than the Syrians. Believe better than the Syrians. God is not limited to the hills and He's not limited to the valleys. He's Lord over all. But, but how often do we think, God, you can't work in this situation. You can't work here. You, you, you can't work in my home or in my car with road rage or, or in your workplace or in your relationships or in our church. No, He's Lord over all. He can work and does work anywhere and everywhere. This is His world. When you are tempted to despair or tempted to sin, God is present And powerful and patient. God is patient. And it's necessary that we obey Him with love and faith. In chapter 21, the next chapter, we learn of God's generosity and the necessity of contentment. That's the second point of this sermon. God's generosity and the necessity of contentment. Follow along as I read chapter 21, just verses 1 to 10 for now. Now Naboth... The Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have for it a vegetable garden, because it's near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord, Yahweh, forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, And she sent the letters to the elders and leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him. And let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. As we did with chapter 20, with this chapter we want to ask, what's here? Why is it here and what do we need to hear? Well, at first, chapter 21 appears utterly disconnected from 
chapter uh, 20. What, what does the story of failing to capture an enemy, uh, capture and kill an enemy, have to do with a coveted vineyard? Well, verse 4 makes a subtle connection for us, doesn't it? Just as Ahab was vexed and sullen when his sin was exposed, so he is vexed and sullen when he does not get what he wants. And that's part of the problem. He wants what does not belong to him. He wants too much. Frankly, he wants the wrong things. Here is a king who not only has a palace in the capital city of Samaria, but he also has a palace, as we see here, in Jezreel. You could think of it as his summer house. Ahab wants to add a vegetable garden to his property in Jezreel. And so, in violation of the Tenth Commandment, he covets his neighbor's property. And that leads to a violation of the Eighth Commandment and then the Sixth Commandment. The author of Kings is continuing to paint a portrait of Ahab as an apostate king. Egypt, according to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 10, was the place of vegetables. You see, Ahab, he's a lot like Pharaoh. He's a lot like the king of Egypt. Israel is the land flowing with milk and honey and vines. Ahab is, perhaps unconsciously, seeking to turn Israel into Egypt. Naboth, Ahab's neighbor, does not give in. And it's not as though he, he's trying to drive a hard bargain, right? Naboth's not like, no, 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 I want you to give me a better price for this place. It's not as though he believes that, or he believes that Ahab has actually made him a bad offer. That's not the reason for his refusal. Take a look at verse 3. He said this, The Lord, Yahweh, forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And what Naboth, what Naboth is pointing out here is that there's an even higher authority than the king of Israel. And that higher authority is the God of Israel. That higher authority is the word of God. With his words here in verse 3, Naboth is appealing to the land laws laid down in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23 to 28, and Numbers chapter 36, verses 7 to 9. Israelites were not to sell away their inheritances unless they were financially destitute. Yahweh, you see, he, when the people of Israel came into the land, he apportioned the land to them, to the tribes of Israel. And the land was to remain within those family tribes. And so Naboth appeals to the inheritance of his fathers. Naboth is being obedient to the word of the Lord. Ahab, as we have seen, is one who is quite ready to disobey the word of the Lord. Whereas Naboth appears to be something of a foil. In contrast to Ahab, Naboth is fully obedient to the word of God. He is content with what God has given him. He doesn't need money or a better vineyard, verse 2. He's grateful for God's generosity. He's content with what he's been given. Of course, Wicked Queen Jezebel steps into the room and she promises to fix King Ahab's problem. Being a descendant of a pagan Gentile king, she knows that real royals don't ask, right? They take. They take. Jezebel plots to not only take Naboth's land, but she also plots to take his life. The elders and leaders of the city, they actually do as Jezebel said. They throw a party for Naboth. Two worthless fellows bring false charges against Naboth. He's taken outside the city and put to death. And news, this news is brought to Ahab. And this is what we read in verse 16 of chapter 21. Do you see verse 16 there? And as soon, 
As Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelites to take possession of it. See that Naboth, he was hardly dead and Ahab can hardly wait to plant his squash and his corn. He was not distant and disconnected from this plot to kill Naboth. He was simply waiting for others to execute it, to carry it out for him. Now pause for a moment. Think of the larger message of the scriptures. Does this, does this story remind you of anyone else in the Bible? Does Naboth remind you of anyone else who is faithful and fully obedient to God's word? Does the bringing of false witnesses and false charges against Naboth remind you of another time the leaders of Israel found false witnesses to bring false charges against an innocent man? And when Naboth is brought outside the city and executed, can you think of anyone else who was brought outside the city and executed? All of this, friends, brothers and sisters, should remind you of Jesus. This is precisely what happened to Jesus, wasn't it? As Naboth was obedient, so Jesus was obedient. So in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, we are told that Jesus was obedient to the point of death. As Naboth was falsely accused, so Jesus was falsely accused. In Mark chapter 14, verse 55, we read, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And as Naboth was brought outside the city and put to death, so was Jesus. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, we read, So Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. It was the perfect plan. It was the perfect plan. Or so Ahab and Jezebel thought. Everyone in town agreed. Everyone in town played their part. And everyone in town turned a blind eye to the death of an innocent man. Everyone. Except God. Take a look at verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, says Yahweh, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, says Yahweh, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Yahweh saw it all. As Moses was commanded to arise and go down to Pharaoh and speak to him and confront him, so Elijah is commanded to arise and go down and speak with Ahab. Through the mouth of Elijah, Yahweh promised Ahab that he would be put to death. Actually, verse 21 it becomes clear that Yahweh will put all, all the sons of Ahab to death too. Did you notice that? Do you know why this is promised? Because not only did Ahab and Jezebel have to put Naboth to death, but due to the inheritance laws, they had to put all of his sons to death too. Otherwise, his vineyard would pass on just to the next one in line. Naboth could not have any sons alive because of those inheritance laws. So just as Naboth and his sons lost their lives, so Ahab and his sons would lose their lives. It's important to remember that the book of Kings is not just about the sins of the kings of Israel and Judah. It's also about the sins of the nation too. If you look at the end of verse 22, we're told 
not only did Ahab sin, but he also what? End of verse 20, he also made Israel to sin. What occurred in Jezreel was symptomatic of what was occurring across the nation. Ahab's house will be judged, Israel will be judged, and Jezebel will be judged. Verse 23, and of Jezebel the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Do not let this escape your notice. Nothing escapes the Lord's notice. When you thought the Lord couldn't see you this past week, He saw you. Every moment. Every minute. He sees all envy, wickedness, covetousness, and greed. He punishes the guilty. All the guilty. Everyone involved in this plot is promised punishment. Ahab hears the words of the prophet Elijah, and he's been around long enough to know, to realize, that when Elijah speaks the word of the Lord, it's certain to come to pass. Watch closely how the chapter ends with Ahab's reaction to Elijah's words, and watch also the Lord's reaction to Ahab. 1 Kings 21, verses 27 to 29. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. I wonder if you see God's generosity here. Yahweh sees Ahab's humility, shallow though it is, as we're going to find out a little later. He sees his humility and decides to delay his punishment. God can postpone Ahab's punishment if it is his good pleasure to do so. God can postpone Israel's punishment. That's why we have 1 Kings 21. That's why the the text is here. It explains why God postpones Ahab's punishment. God is generous and He allows room for repentance. And that is what we need to hear. We need to hear the warning that this chapter speaks to our covetous hearts. Our discontent with God's providence and provision will lead to murder. Maybe not not physical murder. But has not our world seen character assassination due to envy and evil? (laughs) In the Washington, D.C. region... Uh, We specialize in character assassination. Ahab, Jezebel, and the town leaders formed a committee for assassination. But enough pointing the finger out there. What about pointing the finger at our own hearts? 1 Kings 21 and James 4 call us to take a look within. Here's what we read in James chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Conflict, you see, it often comes from our coveting. Our desires drive our divisions. So we have to ask ourselves, am I owed this thing I want? Am I entitled to this or, or that? Does it belong to me? Or am I really willing to let God be God and generously distribute, generously distribute His good gifts according to His generosity as He pleases? 
Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. James 1.17 Am I content with God's generosity? Or will I coerce God and men to get what I want? Do I recognize that this world is not mine for the taking, but God's for the giving? How do we fight discontent? How do we fight grasping for things that the Lord has not given to us? We fight grasping in part with gratitude. When we say thank you to the Lord, we are confessing that we don't deserve His generosity and grace. Have you thanked the Lord for this day? Have you thanked Him for raising you from your bed? Have you thanked Him for your daily bread? Have you eaten this morning? Most importantly, have you thanked God for raising Jesus from the dead? Have you thanked God for giving you a kingdom? Remember in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. If you have a heavenly kingdom, Christian, you have a heavenly kingdom. If you have a heavenly kingdom, if you have the king of heaven, then you have enough. Even if Jesus is all that you have, he is all you will ever need. Not only do we need to hear this word of warning concerning our covetous hearts, but we also need to hear this word of warning concerning God's sight. Just as God saw all the wickedness perpetrated by Ahab and Jezebel and Israel, so God sees all of our wickedness and sin. Because He is holy, just, and good, He will punish our sin, just as He promised to punish Ahab's sin. And the amazing thing is, is that our only hope of escaping God's judgment is trusting in the one to whom Naboth pointed to Jesus. In Jesus Christ, we find that God does not he does not postpone our judgment like He did with Ahab's judgment. No, in Jesus Christ we find that God pours out our judgment upon His one and only Son. He passes our judgment onto His Son. It was His plan to send His Son to be obedient, to be falsely accused, and to be put to death on the cross outside the city. It was His plan to raise His Son from the dead three days after His death and to give Him an inheritance that was promised to Him, the people who believed in Him. And here's the amazing thing, is that Jesus knew this was His destiny. Naboth had no idea He would be celebrated and then betrayed. But Jesus did. Remember Jesus told that parable of the vineyard? Jesus told the parable of the vineyard about God who sent the prophets to His people and they refused and rejected the prophets. And then the father, the owner of the vineyard, sent his son and they put him to death. Jesus told that parable. He knew that he would die. He knew he would die for a covetous people like us. He knows. He knows what we're like and He loves us just the same. So friend, if you're here this morning and, and you're not a believer or follower 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to know that ultimate salvation from sin is available in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and believe in Him. Believe that He lived a righteous and sinless and obedient life. Believe that He came to be your substitute, to stand in your place, not to have your judgment postponed, but to have your judgment poured out upon Him, bearing God's wrath against your sin, and believe that His blood was shed for the complete forgiveness of all of your sins. Believe that He was raised from the grave and offers His life for you. Believe that He offers you a share in His kingdom. Believe that He is the only one who can bring you satisfaction and contentment in this sin-sick world. And if you want to know more about what it means to be satisfied in Jesus and saved by Him, come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's no greater news than this that we have in Jesus Christ. In 1 Kings 20, we learned that Ahab was worthy of judgment. In 1 Kings 21, we see that Ahab, he was promised judgment. And now in 1 Kings 22, what do you think we'll see? We'll see Ahab's judgment. So here's the title of our third point. God's justice. God's justice and the necessity of hearing. God's justice and the necessity of hearing. Take a look at verses 1 to 9 of chapter 22 to begin. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he, and he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord? Of whom we may inquire. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Well, what's here in chapter 22 is a scene, a long scene of two kings, Ahab and Jehoshaphat, planning to go out to war against Syria. As they plan, they seek counsel from the prophets. Uh, these prophets tell the kings precisely what they want to hear, that they'll be successful in battle. Now, this ought to tell us something about these prophets. Uh, they're not really committed to faithfully executing their office. Jehoshaphat, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, knows that, <laughs> look, what we've been hearing, something's off about this. And so he, he asks, all, these 400 prophets, right, they all come with the same message without variation. And Jehoshaphat asks Ahab if there's a prophet in Israel who will tell him the truth, right, regardless 
of the consequences. And, and Ahab uh, reluctantly admits that there is. His name is Micaiah. But as we can see from verse 8, Ahab, he, he hates him, to put it mildly, right? Uh, as the scene unfolds, the prophets, they, they prophesy favorably, and Micaiah is retrieved. And, and, and as Micaiah is being brought uh, to the kings, he's told that he needs to get in line, right? This, this guy who goes to get him kind of leans on him a little bit. Uh, he's basically told by this messenger, look, we, we've all been telling the kings that they're going to be successful in war, uh, so you, it's your, your turn now. Okay, go and do your job. And, and that's the essence of verse 13. But as we see in verse 14, Micaiah, he says that he can't go along with it, right? He tells the messenger that he has to speak only what the Lord says. So pick up reading there in, in verse 15. And when he uh, had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into your hand, the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord, Yahweh, said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Okay, just reflect on this for a moment, right? Initially, Micaiah, he comes in and he speaks as all of the other prophets. But, but Ahab, he knows that's not the truth, right? It's as if kind of Micaiah and Ahab, they have this routine. Micaiah comes in, I'm going to tell you what you want to hear. And then Ahab says, no, no, no. Come on, tell me the truth. And that's... When Ahab presses him for the truth, Micaiah declares that Israel will be scattered as sheep without a shepherd. In other words, Micaiah prophesies that Ahab is going to die in battle. In the verses that follow, Micaiah, he gives the backstory on how all of this has transpired, how he's gotten this message from these 400 prophets, and now he's, how he's getting this true message from him. It's true word. And as Ahab and Jehoshaphat, right, this is the scene, as they sit on their thrones, Micaiah kind of pulls back the curtain. He says, now, as you were sitting here on your thrones, this is what was going on in the throne room of heaven to announce and bring about your judgment. So pick up reading there in verse 19. This is Micaiah explaining, here's what happened in the throne room of heaven. And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing uh, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Shana, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, how did the spirit of the Lord of Yahweh go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into the inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah 
and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord Yahweh has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear, all you peoples. Now there's a lot to disentangle here. Uh, and I don't have all the answers. We have to be content with not having all of the answers. We are finite, and our God is infinite. We can puzzle over how the Lord is so sovereign that He can ordain sin and not be guilty of it. Uh, we can puzzle over that mystery, but it will remain a mystery, I think. Let's also be clear that the text nowhere accuses God of wrongdoing. God does no wrong here. In fact, the text actually vindicates God as the God of truth. You see, though Yahweh permitted lying spirits to go and entice Ahab to go out to war in fulfillment of his promise in the previous chapter's promise of judgment, though Yahweh permitted lying spirits to go out and entice Ahab to go out to war, through the prophet Micaiah, the Lord God actually told Ahab the truth. You see, through Micaiah, the Lord told Ahab what he was actually doing. Through Micaiah, the Lord was saying, uh, Ahab, I sent you 400 prophets to say, come out to war. And I sent you Micaiah, who said, you're going to die in war. In other words, the Lord wasn't deceiving Ahab. He was telling him the truth about what was happening and what would happen. Right through Micaiah, the Lord told Ahab about the 400 prophets who were lying. Micaiah is saying, hey, those 400 prophets... They were lying. I am telling you the truth. And when Yahweh reveals that those 400 prophets are lying, Ahab has the opportunity not to listen to their word, not to listen to the word of the false prophets, and actually refuse, refrain from going out to war to save his life. But Ahab is so hard of hearing. He is in such rebellion against the living God that he disregards the prophetic word of Micaiah. This is also part of the reason why it doesn't matter what Micaiah says to Ahab. Because Ahab is going to do what he wants to do. It's you do you for Ahab, right? He wants to do what he wants to do regardless of what the Lord has said, regardless of what he has said through his prophet Micaiah. So what does Ahab do? Verse 29. Okay, Ahab knows the truth. He knows what's going to happen. Verse 29. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah went up to Ramoth Gilead. Being warned, you're going to die in battle if you go. I'm going to go anyway. That's what Ahab does. And here's the crazy thing about this battle. In the back of his mind, Ahab seems to know that what Micaiah said was true. So he disguises himself. King Jehoshaphat, he, he wears his royal robes, goes out like a big target for everybody. And uh, Ahab, he disguises himself. He hides himself. He thinks that he can escape the Lord's justice by camouflage. But the Lord is going to make good on his promise to judge Ahab. So, so watch what happens in verse 34. Right? Verse 34. But a certain man drew his bow at random. Right? We know this isn't really at random. Right? But a certain man, some guy, just drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale of his armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. 
And the battle continued that day. And the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot at random, right between the breastplate, right. This is the Lord's judgment upon Ahab. Just as the Lord said through the prophet Micaiah, Ahab was put to death and all the men of Israel, they scattered. They wash his chariot by the pool of Samaria. The dogs lick up his blood. And this was all according to the word of the Lord. You see that in verse 36. All according to the word of the Lord. Here we see God's justice. He punishes and puts Ahab to death just as he promised. He was faithful to fulfill his word. Now take a look at verse 39. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Do you know why that's there? Why is that little kind of synopsis there? The author of Kings is saying, look, I know everything that Ahab did. I know all the apparently positive things he did. I know all that he built, but I haven't recorded them here. I haven't recorded them because when you think of Ahab, I want you to think of a man who refuses to hear the word of God. That's why this is here. Because the, the people of Israel, because the people of God need to know that a refusal to hear God's word will arouse God's anger and justice. That's why Israel is going to end up in exile. Because they refuse to hear the word of God. And this is what we need to understand. This is what we need to hear with our own ears. We need to recognize the necessity of hearing. And, and hearing in the Old Testament implies heeding. You hear so that you can obey. You hear so you can heed. Ahab refused to listen. Christian, do not refuse to listen. What was it the author of Hebrews said to New Testament Christians? He said today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. He says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He says, Old Testament Israel refused to listen. Christians, don't refuse to listen to him who has spoken to you a word of love in Jesus Christ. If you refuse to hear and heed, if you refuse to believe, you face the threat of God's justice and judgment. So hear and heed. Hear and believe. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. This morning, from 1 Kings 20, we have seen God's great patience with Ahab and his people. God's patient overtures reveal that he wants our obedience. And similarly, God's great generosity in chapter 21 reveals that God wants us to be satisfied in him and all that he has given to us, especially his son. And the fulfillment of God's justice in 1 Kings 22 teaches us about the danger of failing to hear and to heed. Day after day, our God says to us, Hear. Hear. Hear me. Hear my word of mercy to wicked sinners like Ahab. Sometimes we're a lot like Ahab, aren't we? Sometimes we're hard of hearing. What God wanted from Ahab was repentance and obedience and contentment and hearing and faith. And that is what God wants from us. He sent messenger after messenger to Ahab. He sent unnamed prophets. He sent 
Elijah. He sent Micaiah. But who has he sent to us? He has sent us his son. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Hebrews 2, 1 and 3. Therefore, since he has spoken to us in his son, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Hear and believe the word of mercy offered to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear and believe and you will be saved. Let's pray together.